Today we're in the, the third week of a series on Still Amazed by Grace. And we've talked about what the Bible teaches about grace and how that should be displayed in our lives. And this final message is a challenge for those who are Christians to, to share this message with those who need to have grace dispensed into their lives and, and need to come to Christ. And we all know some people whom we love and whom we want to see in heaven with us. And so we have this divine duty to be deliberate in reaching out to those who don't know the Lord as well yet. So uh, our, our focus today is to explore some practical ways that uh, we can make a, an eternal difference in the lives of others. And so the challenge is we are to extend the grace that we have received. We've gotten God's grace. We can't hoard it. We need to give it out and, and share it. And so the, the first value that I want you to see is that lost people matter to God, and they should matter to us. I, I like the joke about the young woman who came home very upset. Her mother said, what's wrong? And the recently engaged young lady said she was so upset because she had just learned that her, her fiance did not believe in hell. Through her tears, she vowed, I can't marry him now, Mama. Not if he doesn't believe in hell. And the would-be mother-in-law instructed, Honey, you go ahead and marry him. We'll make him believe in hell. <clears throat> well, let me ask you to consider a, a critical question. If you knew that you could make an eternal difference in someone else's life, would you? Jesus spoke of hell as a, an awful reality to be avoided. <clears throat> hell is mentioned in Scripture more than 50 times. Hell wasn't created for people, it was created for Satan and his fallen angels. And those who align themselves with him and reject God will be joined by him in hell. But if hell had not posed a genuine danger to all created by God, there would have been no logical reason or purpose for Jesus to substitute himself and die as our Redeemer. And as uncomfortable or difficult as this subject may feel, we have to find a way to speak into the lives of those we know or encounter on this most critical preparation item of life. Jude is a, a one-chapter book. There's no chapter heading. It's just one chapter. So in, in Jude, verse 23, it contains this phrase. It says, snatch others from the fire and save them. This, this idea of helping people avoid going to hell. When you fly on an airplane, the, the flight attendant goes through the familiar motions and tells you how to buckle your seatbelt, gives you all the instructions pre-flight, what to do in case there's a sudden air pressure drop and oxygen masks will drop down for each passenger. And the instruction, get, and the instruction given is for each adult passenger to immediately put on his or her air mask and then assist the passengers uh, beside uh, who are putting on their masks. And so today, that's, that's what we're, we're talking about. As soon as we become Christians, we, we believe, we repent, we confess, we are immersed. That is, we put on our emergency oxygen mask, and then we are challenged to quickly turn to those around us who need assistance in putting on their emergency oxygen sources and, and trying to, to help them. And so this message is intended to show us some ways to intentionally build relationships with, with non-believers, earn the right to be heard, and provide an, an influence that will last on into eternity. So it begins with that understanding, that motivation first, that lost people matter to God, and they should matter to us. 
And value number two is that we should see the worth in each person you encounter. Would you join me in trying to see the, the good present, sometimes hidden deeply, within each person you encounter every day? Sometimes it has been buried deeply, shellacked beneath layer upon layer of hurt and hardness. And we need to see with God's eyes and, and begin to uncover the divine value that he has instilled in every person. I love the, the quote from Bill Hybels when he said, you have never looked into the eyes of a person for whom Jesus didn't die. We need to begin to picture lost people as pre-Christians, each ripe with potential and possibilities. As a child, I used to go to vacation Bible school at the Western Hills Church of Christ. And Mike Nakoff was a member there. And Mike, you may not remember this incident, but you may remember these individuals. There was a, a boy named Kendall, about eight years old, who would eat chalk in order to get attention. And, and it got attention. It, it freaked out all the other kids and, and many of the adults. So whenever things weren't going his way, he starts shoveling sticks of chalk into his mouth and chewing them up. If you don't like fingernails on a blackboard, you really aren't going to like someone chewing chalk. And long before the, the NBA started to find players for flopping, you know, the melodramatic falling down, feigning as though they've been severely fouled, Kendall was the original flopper. If Kendall decided he didn't want to travel to the next assigned rotation, he would flop on the floor and passively go limp rag in his self-styled tantrum. Another child at VBS during craft time got mad at Elbert, the kid sitting next to him, while making crafts. Angry and impulsive, this youngster reached for a wire pipe cleaner and aggressively poked Elbert in the eye with a pipe cleaner. Hey, that really could put an eye out. Well, after some severe consequences, this short-fused little chap kept coming to VBS and being loved by some grace-filled adults, and he grew up to be a minister. In fact, he's your lead minister delivering this, this message today. Hey, I, I think I'm starting to mellow out a little, little bit in my older age here. Would you determine to see the worth and potential in each person you encounter? Would you see people as God sees them? Would you see the possibilities for their life change if Christ were to begin to guide their thoughts, their speech, their actions? Would you pray for opportunities to sow the gospel seed and have a spiritual conversation with someone. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And this passage goes on to coach us on how to move a, a dialogue with others toward an, an eternal direction. Verse 5 says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Value number three is be intentional with those whom you can influence. When I was in, in college, I, I worked at the downtown Central Parkway YMCA, and it was at that time home to many elite athletes 
of the day. NBA great Oscar Robertson played basketball in our Thursday night men's league. You guard him. I'm not guarding him. You, you guard him. Uh, we had, we had uh, the boxing reigning welterweight champion of the world, Aaron Pryor, and his entourage, which included his financial sponsors, backer, buddies, La Rosa. We had bodybuilders, runners, swimmers, and, and upstairs in the Y was an inexpensive hotel housing that often served as a meeting place for, for homosexual men. And that's what the village people were actually singing about and broadcasting in their familiar song, YMCA. One night while I was, was working, uh, a black man from Pittsburgh who was staying as a guest in the hotel came down to work out in the uh, gym facility, and he learned that I was uh, a ministry student at the nearby Bible college, and so he wanted to ask me a theological question. He said, since I'll never see you again, I, I guess I can tell you this. And then he confided in me that he was a homosexual, and he began to ask me what God thought about homosexuality. And I gave an impromptu explanation that the Bible taught that homosexuality was a departure from God's plan for the family and that, that it was a sin. I explained that his specific sin could be forgiven if repented of and that God can forgive anyone's sin. I reminded him that God loved him and, and that I would continue to pray for him in, in the days to come. And on that night in 1979, I, I wrote his name and his city in my address book. And when I've seen it again through the ensuing years, I, I have prayed for him. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Remember that every person is an individual. There's no formula uh, when working with others because we all have free will. People can decide to follow Christ or determine, I, I don't want to follow Christ. There's no cookie-cutter approach that works every time. There's no silver bullet. There's no magic incantation. But there are some consistent values that help propel us toward guiding people to the Lord. Let me give you a few. A is seeing the potential in each person. Spec homes are uh, when an investment buyer sees the potential, makes a speculative purchase, assists with some necessary improvements, and then watches the value of the property appreciate. And, and others do that with old cars or, or furniture. And, and it's a rehab that sees worth, and, and it sees potential, and, and then it realizes a profit. It develops it more fully. And God wants us to invest in people that way, people of all nations, all colors, all languages, all backgrounds. Heaven will be this rich mosaic of all the people groups throughout all time who have obeyed Christ and been covered by his grace. We can't only invest in people like ourselves, but we need to reach out to those with whom we may not have a lot in common. In sports, you have the, the odds-on favorite and you have the long shot. Sometimes you hand off the ball to someone nearby, and sometimes you, you throw up a Hail Mary pass to someone way downfield. There are times when you shoot the layup and deliver the slam dunk. And there are times when you launch that half-court shot at the buzzer, and that's all true with sharing the gospel. We have both extremes. We can't concentrate only on those who might be the percentage shot people, more likely to come to faith in Jesus, but we need to be willing to sow seeds, share our faith, uh, invest in kindness, reach out in love, shine Christ's 
love on anybody and everybody we encounter. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount when, when Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. And that's the only time he used a metaphor that he used to describe himself. I am the light of the world. He used it for his followers and said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This verse describes the effort that we must make with others in order to earn the right to be heard so that we can speak into their lives. So, so how do we do that? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And those are the relationships that, that make a difference as we try to direct people to God. I, th I think another important component is that most will not respond to Christ immediately. We're in this for the long haul. It, it will take years with, with most people, months with many. And so there are rare moments where people respond immediately because they're right at that intersection in their life where it's just the right moment. Our job is just to be spiritual farmers, sowing the seed faithfully and tending the seed that we've sown, and, and God will make it grow. And so you, you don't have to be perfect to do that. Satan attempts to silence our witness for Christ because of our inconsistencies and our, our previous mistakes. Satan will say, well, you, you shouldn't talk to them about the Lord. You're not so perfect yourself. Remember this week when you lost your temper or when you said that or when you told that lie or you know, and dot, 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 and and Satan tries to stifle us from reaching out and sharing with others because we're all strugglers. And so I want to challenge you, don't wait until you're perfect. But if you're consistent, you're striving to grow and you're making some progress and you're authentic and there's some spiritual transformation taking place, then every Christian has the responsibility to, to share their faith. I love the, the story of the, the, the revival service and the evangelist was just shouting at the top of his lungs. He said, I'm looking for people who are perfect. Is there anyone here tonight who is perfect? I mean, you have never sinned. And of course, everyone just kind of looked down. He goes, I mean, if you've never done anything wrong, we'd all like to know about it. Would you please let us know? And again, everyone's just like, I hope he finishes soon. And, and so he said, I mean, if you have never sinned, if you are perfect, would you please just stand up? Because we'd all like to take a look at you. Suddenly, a man in the second row slowly rose to his feet, and there was this collective gasp from everyone. And, and the preacher was shocked. He looked down, and the evangelist said, Sir, you mean you have never sinned? You were perfect? You've never done anything wrong? The man said, No, no, uh, that, that's not the case, but I just thought somebody should stand and represent my wife's first husband. <laughs> well, the moral of the story is you don't need to be perfect. No one is. You need to be consistent and growing and progressing, and then you can share your faith. Don't wait until you're perfect or you'll never talk to anyone about Christ. B is rarely is this a solo effort. It's not a lone ranger sport where one-on-one -on -one people are led to the Lord, but more there's this collective effort, this tag team approach of several caring individuals who help plant seeds and nurture seeds and and guide people toward response. I'll, I'll give you an, an example. Years ago, uh, a new Skyline Chili opened not far from the church I served, and I, I would eat there frequently, which probably will not surprise many of you. And uh, 
I began to develop a, a number of friendships with the servers and with Chad, the manager. Chad was a, a disenfranchised Catholic, and he'd grown up in, in Cincy but had not attended church in years. And so for several years, I'd come in there and eat, and we became good friends. And whenever I tried to steer the conversation toward more spiritual matters, uh, he would move the, the topic back to his fantasy football team. That was what he was more comfortable talking about so I, I felt resistance and waited it wasn't the right time and I just prayed that God would provide the, the perfect timing so I, I invited Chad to go to a, a New Year's sports breakfast with me that was being held on January 1st at another church and I knew it was a long shot I'd asked him many times to church but this resonated with me he said yeah I'll, I'll do that and so we went and listened and the, and the speaker was uh, another of Chad's customers Brett a, a mutual friend of ours who gave the devotions that day about a week after that, Chad said to me, I I'm really confused. I don't understand why there's so many different churches. I said, could I study the Bible with you and, and, and try to answer your questions? And so Chad and, and Brett and I began to meet weekly at Skyline on Thursday afternoons at 2 o'clock and sit in a booth to study. And the first week, Chad brought a list of 12 questions. Well, what about this? I don't understand that. This doesn't make sense to me. The next week, 10 questions. The, the third week, 6 questions. The next week, 4 questions. And it was exciting to see the light bulb go on in, in Chad's eye. And after, after a month of study, Chad was ready to commit his life to Christ. And he came forward at our church. And that January, he was immersed into Christ. And at that time, his wife, April, renewed her commitment to Christ. And she was already an immersed believer. She transferred her membership to the church. And then soon after that, Tara, another server with whom I'd spoken for four years, began to attend our church. And she had also now been influenced for Christ by Chad, her manager, and, and by April. And by Stan, another Skyline-loving Christian, and I had the privilege of, of baptizing Tara a week before she gave birth to her new child, a, a two-for-one special. Now, I, I don't think that's exactly how it works, but her, her husband, Seth, began to uh, attend our church with Tara, and then other servers started visiting the services. There was Val who visited, and Justin started attending, and he brought his girlfriend, Jennifer, and they all worked at the same place, and a beachhead had been established and only eternity will reveal the full result of this cooperative effort into friendship evangelism. Chad ended up baptizing his son, Dylan, and today Dylan is a minister, and those reverberations continue to extend into eternity, and it's, it's amazing how, how God works. C is, is make an effort regardless of the outcome, put it in God's hands. You may say, hey, I've never been to Bible college. I'm, I'm not a theologian. I'm probably not the best person to, you know, to talk to this, this person. Well, if the person's your friend, you're a great starting point, and, and others can come alongside and join you in, in helping that collaborative effort. Let, let me put it to you this way. If you're in a restaurant and someone starts choking at the next table, you may not be the most qualified person to do the Heimlich maneuver, but you may be the closest person in proximity and you have a moral obligation to step in and do what you can to help save that life. You can't say, well, I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not an EMT. I haven't done any nurse training. It, it doesn't matter. Someone's choking to death. You better wrap your arms around them and, and give those, those uh, thrusts into their chest to try to dislodge that food and, and do what you can to save their life. But we won't save everybody in the world. I, I hate that. But that's the reality that Jesus taught. He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And our free will ability to choose permits many to say, no thanks. 
And, and so we can't coerce anyone into a commitment. It's, it's got to be a personal decision. And yet we are to attempt to resuscitate and not to stand by without trying to save a, another's life. We, we, we can't idly shove our hands in our pockets and, and, and watch someone go to hell because we didn't make an effort. We must build intentional relationships and pray for opportunities to, to impact the people we encounter. You know, in the sermon, in the, the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. And the grammatical construction of that sentence is literally, as you are going throughout the world, make disciples. That means as you go through your schedule, as you go through your week, as you go through your day, as you go to school, as you go to work, as you're talking with your neighbors, as you get together with your, your hobby friends, you need to be, as you are going, making disciples. And so that's, that's our responsibility. And sometimes even casual acquaintances, former associates, social media connections, brief random acquaintances that pass through our lives, we can have a hand in redirecting the trajectory of their spiritual lives. Sometimes you, you only have a few seconds to point someone in the right direction, and those are not the high percentage shots. They're more like the, the full court shot thrown up at the buzzer. But do you know why most players almost always attempt that full court shot at the buzzer? It's because on rare occasions, some of those shots go into the, ba the basket and are game changers. And the same is true of our occasional attempts to share the gospel with someone in need who it may be just the right moment where they are ripe for hearing God and, and that nudge and being receptive to him. I, I remember Brian Bailey. Brian uh, was, was a guy who had grown up pretty far from the Lord. Uh, by age 22, he had had uh, all the teeth knocked out in his, his mouth with a pool cue from a barroom brawl, and he had a complete upper and lower set of dentures at, at age 22. And he was a, a struggling alcoholic, and he just uh, had a lot of challenges in his life. Well, one night he walked by a church, and the doors were open on this summer night, and he could hear music inside, and he was a little inebriated at the moment, but he just kind of went in, sat on the back row, and started listening. And as the, the minister spoke, God spoke and, and directly challenged Brian, and Brian walked forward on the invitation. Brian committed his life to Christ. Brian was immersed that night and fully surrendered and said, I, I'm all in. I'm going to live for Jesus. So what do you do the next day? You can go one of two extremes. He said, you know what? I'm all in on this. I'm a Christian now. I think I probably should become a minister. And so that's, that's what he did. He, and so he was the first minister that I worked with after I graduated from Cincinnati Bible College in, in Georgetown, Ohio. He was the senior minister, and, and I was the associate minister. And Brian's testimony has taught me that all it takes is, is one message, and you don't have to be completely focused to hear it for God to, to speak to you and, and change your life. And it changed Brian's life, Brian's family's life, and hundreds of people that he influenced through, through his years of ministry. So I, I always see it as a very precious, solemn responsibility anytime I deliver a, a message because someone may hear one message and, and it can change everything. Um, I, I like 1 Corinthians 3.6. Paul said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Our, our God is a missional God. 
He's on the move. He's on a mission. And since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned and they felt shame and they went away and hid from God, our, our sin drives this distance between us and God. We're ashamed to be around him because of what we've done. God has been pursuing his lost children since that day in the garden, and, and he still continues to pur- pursue us when we are, are in the far country and we've turned our back on him. And we must speak the truth in love and, and call people to, to Christ because hell is, is real. We don't want anyone to go there. A, a woman was flying on an airplane reading her Bible and seated beside her was a skeptic. So he said, uh, you really believe that book? She said, I, I absolutely do. He said, so you mean you believe in Jonah and the whale? She said, well, actually, the Bible says it was a big fish, but yes, I, I believe it. And he said, well, you know, uh, I, I don't know about that. She said, well, I don't know all the details, but she said, when I get to heaven, I, I can ask Jonah all about it. And the atheist pressed, well, what if Jonah doesn't go to heaven? She responded politely, then you can ask him. So it, it, as, as we found, it, it's really it's one or the other. There are really only two choices. We choose heaven for ourselves or we choose hell. But ultimately, the decision is yours. It's up to you and it's up to me. And we will be responsible for our choices and we will live with the outcome of our selection and we'll live with it for eternity. I want to close with, with a story called Just Nine Doors Down. You, you, you may have heard it, but it's, I think, a good reminder that we need to be dispensing grace all the time to anyone that we encounter. It's written by a lady named Karen Amen. And she said, in the two years since we moved into our new neighborhood, I'd seen her on many walks, and sometimes she was just rolling her trash can out to the curb and her in the front yard watering her flowers. I'd smile and say hi for a brief second. After all, my neighborhood is big, my life is busy, so I'd pop my headphones back in and just keep walking to my house just nine doors down. A while back, there were flashing lights and sirens and all things alarming in our neighborhood. And I thought, wonder if there's a fire. As I drove into my street, I was returning from running some errands, and my mama's heart raced. My 12-year-old was home alone. Had he burnt some toast and set the smoke alarm system blaring or, or worse? Was our house on fire? As my car approached, I saw it was not my house, but it was another house nine doors down. And I felt relief for my soul. And Though the rescue vehicles were parked in front of my nine doors down neighbor's house, no fire appeared to blaze out of there either. So it must have been a false alarm, I reasoned. Two days later, I heard the awful news. There there was no fire, uh, no smoke, just a a terribly saddened soul. You see, nine doors down, something happened in the mind of my nameless, flower-watering, smile-and-say-hello fellow human being. Something told her that this life wasn't worth living anymore, and she agreed. And now her heart no longer beats. Her her flowers still grow, but she can't water them anymore. I can still walk by her house, lost deeply in the Jesus music blaring on my iPod, but staring straight ahead, rushing to the next thing on my to-do list for the day. Nine doors down, there will be no more hand waves, no smiles as I stroll by, no more thoughts of, I should stop and find out her name. I, I haven't really met her yet. If I'd have reached out and befriended her, would she have seen Jesus in our friendship? Could we have walked the neighborhood streets together? Maybe gone for a cup of coffee to get to know each other better? Would a glimpse of the perfect God in the life of an imperfect me 
perhaps beckoned her to have a relationship with him too? Would she have found God's purpose and peace instead of finding a way to end her emotional pain? God only knows. Karen writes, I'm, I'm only a woman who wants to love God, but so often I'm too busy to really love the people he puts plainly in my path. But this love is more important than all the sacrifices that we can make. She said, I cannot beat myself up, I, but I can do something, and, and so can you. We can pause, permitting God to tap on the heart, gently interrupt us, and, and rearrange our day. We can go deeper beyond a hurried, hi, to an authentic, how are you? But when God knocks on our hearts, we can knock on their doors. Will you do it? Will you try? And then once you've reached out, leave the results to God. Our job is obedient. God's job is the results. She said, trust me, it is awful to get to know your neighbor through the tales and tears of her relatives at a memorial service. I wish I had made the time and gotten to know her personally. She concludes, may we all respond to those taps on our hearts today and not ignore them. God may use them to save a life. And after all, remember, it isn't that far of a walk. It's just nine doors down. She prayed, dear Lord, I, I want you to be aware of the times when you tap on my heart and you ask me to reach out to someone. May I pay attention. May I respond so that they may know you in Jesus' name. Attempt to resuscitate someone. Do something. Try to save another's life. You don't watch a, a burning building go up in smoke just without making an effort. i close with this poem. When I get to that wonderful city and the saints all around me appear, I want to hear somebody tell me it was you who invited me here. 